Hey everyone, Nick here. I just wanted to say thanks for listening to the Sometimes Weekly Podcast. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've gotten some great feedback and suggestions from listeners, uh, and one of those suggestions was to introduce a mailbag segment, so to uh, accept questions, comments, or uh, contributions from listeners to prompt further discussion, uh, particularly around the 2024 election. If you're interested in having your question uh, addressed here on the show, uh, just reach out to Adam and I, or you can send an email to hello at sometimesweekly.com, uh, and your question or contribution may be uh, a prompt, a, a point of discussion for a future episode. Today on the podcast, Adam and I have a conversation about the 2024 election, and then of course we have another installment of Adam Thorne's British Invasion. Uh, again, thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to hop right in here to the middle of a conversation that Adam and I are having, so don't be too jarred by that, but uh, appreciate your support. Consider subscribing if you haven't already, uh, and I hope you enjoy the episode. It's interesting to think of books as... But it's interesting to think of books as, you know, you classically think them as like historical commentaries. Really, beyond that, they are snapshots of in time. Yeah. It's it's a it's effectively the same as a picture, as a as a form of communication as a form of media as a form of art yes Uh, the author kurt vonnegut uh, ends the novel the 1982 novel dead eye dick uh with the following uh phrase which he uh articulates as the the character in the novel seeing written on a a bathroom uh, wall uh to be is to do socrates to do is to be jean paul sartre doobie doobie do frank sinatra (laughs) (laughs) with that said I think we should jump into uh, where we are in the 2024 election. And uh, last week, uh, uh, Donald Trump, the former, uh, I should say, the ex-president of the United States, uh, who uh, left in disgrace, uh, twice impeached, won the Iowa caucuses with about 51% of the Republican caucus goers' votes. Mm -hmm. The election uh, was the lowest turnout, I think, in 20 or so years, um, which is really embarrassing. I mean, could you imagine if Joe Biden hadn't uh, strong-armed the Democratic Party, which he did because he's Joe Biden and he knows really how to get things done, and we don't talk about that element of Joe Biden, but strong-arms the party and basically says we're not holding any uh, primaries, which is typical of an incumbent president mm-hmm. uh, to, do, yes. to do that. That's nothing new. But could you imagine if there were primaries, competitive primaries, and Joe Biden received 51% of the vote, what would the narrative have been? It would not be this is decisive as... Uh, as CNN called no, it, or, Joe, or, or, Joe or Biden. Joe Biden is a weak old man, and Gavin Newsom is the future of the Democratic Party. But the the narrative we get when Trump wins is uh, that he's strong, he's 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 destined, he's he's uh, inevitable because it sells. Uh, it sells and it scares people, and it sells fear, and it yes. moves us it moves us closer to the the coveted horse race uh, faster as well. But of course, this is a failure. I mean, the, the results in Iowa is a failure, it A, shows a weakness of Trump, his failure to actually coalesce even conservative Iowans around his message. I reject that to a degree. It's a recognition on voters that this guy's a piece of shit. Um, yeah, I think that's just, I, I see that as reworded. We've had, you know, it's like, okay, we had four years of Donald Trump. And we've had eight and a half years of him in the political sphere. Uh, I guess since he declared his candidacy, let's put it that way. And now that in a extremely low turnout caucus, you know, given a whole bunch of structural factors, i.e. weather, caucus going, it's on a Monday, etc. And that's the vote share that he gets. That's most voters sitting there and being like, eh, pass. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it exposes a weakness uh, in his candidacy, uh, and it ex- exposes, as you're saying, a very clear uh, understanding by the voters, even conservative Iowans, that this is not the path they wish to take. And there is a narrative as well 
that I don't know I necessarily accept, which is ultimately all of these conservatives will fall in line and vote for Donald Trump. Uh, well, I, I, all we'll get we'll get there. Many later will. In this episode. Many of them will, but I don't know if all of them will. And if that's not palatable to conservative evangelical Iowans, or at least many a sizable chunk of them, how is that going to play with a general electorate that is not as conservative and definitely not um, as evangelical as Republican Party members in Iowa? And, and as we're speaking, uh, today is January 23rd, 2024. The New Hampshire primary is happening today, and I've just been handed a note. It's 3.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I've been handed a note here from the Sometimes Weekly Decision Desk, which is now ready to make the declaration that uh, Donald Trump has won the New Hampshire primary. Uh, and I'm actually being handed a second note here that uh, Donald Trump has been uh, renominated for the Republican uh, nomination for president. At nominees Patrice at Philly, Sometimes Weekly is ready to make these declarations, uh, and it is official as as far as we're concerned. Sitting from our perspective, again, my decision desk is separate from me. I have no input in over that. There's analysis. They look at numbers. They look at polls. They have, they have Nate. They have Nate Silver throwing a, a, a fit right now that we've made this declaration early. But like Fox News declaring uh, Nevada, we're going to stand by this decision. Florida, Florida, Florida. So uh, Trump moves into into this nomination of the Republican Party in mm-hmm. 2024 with everything we know about him. And there's going to be constant attempts uh, by the media and by the Republican establishment to frame this as a as a traditional horse race. Uh, there is going to be a sense on the establishment media's part that they have to cover uh, both Joe Biden and the Democrats with some level of the same uh, scrutiny that they're going to approach Donald Trump with, and the media will approach him with some level of scrutiny, but there's going to be a balancing act. It has to be 50% bad for Democrats, 50% bad for Republicans. We can't really tell people, uh, we can't take sides, is basically where the media is. And the Republican Party, meanwhile, you know, aside from the voters, which in Iowa, 49% of the voters uh, rejected the ex-president's uh, messaging, messaging in his, in his, his uh, gimmicks, they're going to start to whitewash around. We have to come together. We have to stop the Democrat Party. Uh, you know, we have to make sure we get conservative values back in there. Good for them. And this is all despite January 6th, the insurrection, you know, four years of Donald Trump's presidency. 91 felony counts. And all of the different uh, trials that are ongoing, as Thorne just mentioned. You have the Georgia criminal inquiry going on. Uh, you have a prosecutor there wh- who brought 41, a 41 count indictment on racketeering, which is an organized crime. Uh, that includes co-conspirators like Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows. Uh, Mark Meadows recently uh, endorsed uh, uh, endorsed Donald Trump as well as a co-conspirator, but he's also cooperating witnesses in certain cases. And how 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 like I I, I struggle I, I'm struggling with this. Yeah, Doctor Nick. Here's now here's a guy to, to channel my inner Chris Collinsworth that was the chief of staff in the White House has been named as a co-conspirator is now apparently a cooperating witness in multiple trials to save his own literally to save his own liberty. Yeah, I, I don't think we can't get in the minds of Mark Meadows or Ted Cruz and, and or then Lindsey Graham. You go out. We, we can't get in the minds of these. It's not worth... Pardon me, Francais, and then you go out and fucking endorse him. Yeah, it, it, there's no... I don't get it. It's, I mean, look, the simple, the simple answer is the contradictory nature of the existence of these people does them very to little, no... They do very to little no, uh, self-reflection, and they have no shame standing... Uh, as, disgusting. A, as a contradictory existence. They just don't care. I mean, people like Elise Stefanik, who are now... I, I wrote her down, too. Who are now uh, lying about things we can witness with our own eyes, of Donald Trump mixing up Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley's name. She just said that didn't happen. Uh, she's a Harvard-educated uh, individual. Like She served in the George W. Bush administration. This is someone that should, quote-unquote, know better. But we've since 2015, we've been dealing with these people and, who, should, and she who was, should know better. At one time, she was a moderate, up, moderate Republican from upstate New York. Yeah. And then, and then she just falls into this 
cult. It, and what I think what's important uh, what's important to say is that there's a path out for most people from this uh, from what's happening, and you see that in Iowa when 49 percent of the people vote against Donald Trump and vote for someone else. There's still a path out, but no, we, we these establishment people who are uh, you know backed by corporations who are now starting to align with. Uh, this uh, ideology that's on the far right, uh, because from the corporate perspective, uh, the administration of Joe Biden uh, is one that has come for toward corporate power. I mean, you can you can pretend he's uh, he's an old man, or he is sorry, not pretend he is an old man, but his administration has gone after uh, corporate greed and has uh, worked toward implementing uh, minimum taxes and has fought for. Uh, on the side of unions, he's the first president to go to a picket line and fight with with the unions. But but yet corporate profits, especially during the inflationary period of a couple of years ago, skyrocketed. Yes. So again, it's dulicitous. It it is. It's because it's all BS. It, it's not. Well, it's not BS. It's just very. It's just greed, and unfortunately, it's an element of human nature which uh, has existed through all time, which is uh, not reemerging as much as it, it's it's accelerating. Uh, and uh, it's beginning to enter the stage, which is uh, very, very, very concerning. Well, and, and if we hadn't already exhausted our philosophical references for the day, this would probably be the part, the juncture, I should say, of the podcast where we would reference Francis Bacon. Sure. But uh, what did I, Francis Bacon say? Well, it's the, the idols of the tribe and... Yeah, I mean it's all it's all that it's, tri- it's tribalism. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and we've been talking and, about it for years. And there's tribalism as well on the Democratic side. Uh, in smaller doses, you see it with people like Andrew Cuomo. Uh, you see these. Yeah, I actually call them, and I think other people do too. This is not an original thought, but blue anon, regardless of what evidence is presented to them, will still support these individuals where evidence comes out, but because of one instance of a good PowerPoint are unwilling to break from their faction, from their uh, from their uh, sort of uh, tribalism, as you've described it. Yes. So in the Georgia criminal inquiry, you have Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows named as co-conspirators, and this is all surrounding the, the lying to the Georgia state legislator about claims of voter fraud uh, and the attempt to create fake pro-Trump electors. Uh, and these electors, of course, are appointed uh, in order to create confusion, uh, ultimately to then go to Congress and say there's confusion, we need to halt things, we need to slow things down, which we'll get into in a second. And Trump says famously on his phone call with Georgia Secretary of State, I just quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. One more than we have. So, uh, and that's a direct quote. I mean, he said we need to find exactly one more vote than we have to win. And then, of course, uh, as well, there's been uh, criminal charges brought there or charges brought there for tampering with voting machines. So that's the Georgia criminal on racketeering. And that's pretty closely aligned with the January 6th uh, and 2020 election uh, uh, federal case brought by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith, uh, who is a SUNY Oneana graduate. Uh, and these are three charges, uh, def- defrauding the United States, obstructing an uh, official government proceeding, and depriving the people of civil rights provided by the federal law uh, or the Constitution. The indictment there says, quote, the defendant pushed officials in certain states to ignore the popular vote, disenfranchise millions of voters, dismiss legitimate electors, and ultimately cause the ascertainment of and voting by illegitimate electors in favor of the defendant, Trump. So there's fake electors in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Nevada, uh, as well as Georgia, who have all been indicted on these charges of, uh, of creating documents indicating they're the real electors and disenfranchising millions of votes across those states for the electors who were duly elected and were, were uh, ultimately who did uh, fulfill their duty in December of 2020. Uh, 2020. So in addition to those things, uh, the fake elector, the plan was to pressure Mike Pence to delay the certification of the election uh, or to reject outright the legitimate electors. Uh, and what's interesting is on January 5th, Chuck Grassley uh, famously said, uh, or famously to me, said, if the vice president isn't there and we don't expect him to be there, I will be presiding over the Senate. So there, there were all these moving pieces. You have the electors, you have pressure on Pence, you have Grassley somehow getting information that he might be presiding. What was Grassley's position at, at that time? He was the, the Senate. Well, he uh, was the pro tem, yeah. but like, what was his position about certification? Um, I, I, I believe he, he was bought in at least somewhat to the to the election denials 
denialism in a way that all the Republican senators were, which is there's questions. People are asking questions. We really should look at this, which sounds innocent enough until you combine right, it with all but other it's, aspects. It's not. This, this is high irony because, and I took a list of the um, Republican Senate leadership and whether or not they've endorsed Trump by uh, time of recording today. So there's nine members, well, there's eight, but they still keep Chuck Grassley around because, I mean, we think the president, President Biden is old. Mm-hmm. Chuck Grassley's 10 years older. Yeah. You know, I mean, this, this, this is some, you know, yeah. not Strom Thurmond level, but he's up there. Okay, so there's nine members in the Republican Senate leadership. Four have endorsed Barrasso, Danes, Lee, and Crapo. Mm-hmm. Five have not. Grassley, Thune, Joni Ernst, our, and for this podcast, our personal favorite senator, Shelley Moore Capito. Of uh, West Virginia. The junior senator of the great state of West Virginia. And Mitch McConnell. Okay. Have not endorsed Trump as of January 21st, 2024. Yeah. So the, there is a bit of irony involved that Chuck Grassley was going to be the head of this or, or the symbol head, or the he was one of many options, right? But he was he was going to be the fall guy, or at least the face of the fall guy of this false flag operation to bring in fake votes, right? But yet he hasn't endorsed this guy yet. Yeah, not quite yet. Uh, I, Which I, I mean, yeah, he probably. Will. I'm not holding out hope that any of these people will ultimately stand on uh, any sort of moral footing, because of course, uh, in the wake of January 6th, many of these individuals came out and spoke and tried to stop Donald Trump. Right, but, but why? Why are we discussing these characters like they do have a moral compass? Uh, I, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. I don't think I ever have. It's like, why, why are we discussing these yeah. people like there's hope that they would do the right thing? Well, there's look, been... again, I, there's no way to get into their heads and to make sense of this. They, they are either and they, they are justifying. There's some some combination of thoughts that's occurring in their heads that they are ultimately justifying it, uh, whether that's corporate greed or whether that's, uh, you know, racism uh, in terms of fearing the other i mean you know these these senators are not smart people i mean we think because they're senators they're smart people i'm sure some of them are smart people those are actually the scary ones the scary ones are the smart people who do understand what's happening and they are choosing to go along with it that's the most yeah, alarming. yeah, yeah. the less alarming but equally as concerning uh, is the senator who uh does not understand the threat or what's happening or has been t- actually themselves consumed by it so you know we have that on January 5th, Grassley saying that. We have this pressure campaign. We have this, uh, you know, multi-pronged effort to seize voting machines, to uh, p- appoint electors. It's, a, it's pure chaos. I mean, if you're looking at this a- as a coordinated campaign, which it is, under the guise of people like Stephen Miller, a White House advisor, uh, and just all around really bad guy, uh, you can see there all these different prongs. And so they're all, all of those prongs are... Uh, I don't know the exact academic term, but they're silent coups. They're, they're bloodless coups. They're coups that are uh, administrative. Uh, and if we create enough confusion, suddenly we can hold on to the rings of power. I would just like the record to state that the, at least for me personally, the seeing just the image, and we don't have an image pulled up of Stephen Miller right now, it makes me nauseous. Yeah, he, he looks like the baddie. Uh, he he looks like he might be. Wasn't uh, he the one that was um, in his high school cafeteria um, throwing or not maybe not throwing food on the floor, but like leaving trash behind and making speeches that that's why we have janitors? That sounds exactly like the kind of Stephen Miller uh, anecdote that I've, I've come to hate. Yes. Um, so January 6th is really the last attempt. You have all of these administrative coups happening, uh, these bloodless attempts to hold on to power. Uh, and even on January 6th, they're still making the attempt to uh, convince Pence, now that, we, that, that, now that sometime on January 6th, I believe, Pence releases a statement saying he disagrees basically with the legality of of uh, stopping the electors or not certifying the electors and that he's going to preside in as vice president. He ha- he's just a sort of ceremonial role uh, in mm-hmm. this and that he has no actual power. Much the same as Vice President Biden 
did in two thousand January sixth, two thousand and seventeen. Yes, when he oversaw and certified the election that put Donald Trump into power uh, and and Vice President Mike Pence into power as well. So on January 6th, I mean, we know, of course, the we all think of the storming of the Capitol, and we know a little bit about what what led up to it. But I, so I just want to remind us, because this is the backdrop of a total of 27 U.S. senators endorsing Donald Trump at, at present, uh, all Republicans, of course, and a total of 130 sitting representatives in the House, all endorsing Donald Trump. The decision of Ron DeSantis, not surprising to endorse Donald Trump. Uh, and then the endorsement of Tim Scott, who just recently dropped out. It's really sad and pathetic for Tim Scott to I didn't to even know that it. Tim Scott dropped out. It's, uh, it's a shame. It's uh, a shame. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. I just love you. No, that's... <laughs> it's important that we remember that January 6th, you know, it was more than just uh, people wandering into the Capitol. It was primarily, it was meant to be an administrative coup. No one had, no one, I, I, I'm, I know politics pretty well, and I know the certification is a thing, but I didn't yeah. know any more than that. I didn't oh. know the date. I didn't know what happens there. I didn't know the process, really. Really, there shouldn't be a reason to know anything more than that. Right. I completely agree. But at 9.02 a.m. on January 6th, after Pence on the day prior put out that statement saying he was going to ultimately do his duty as prescribed by the Constitution, at 9.02 a.m. on January 6th, Trump calls Pence, and Pence does not answer the call. At 9.52 a.m., uh, for about 30 minutes, Trump speaks with Stephen Miller, and refines uh, his speech uh, at the conclusion of that call, uh, Stephen Miller emails revisions to the speechwriter, and there was only one significant uh, revision. Prior to this revision, Mike Pence was not mentioned in the speech that Trump was going to give on the ellipse, uh, but they added this, this chunk. The rest were mostly cosmetic. Quote, Today we will see whether the Republicans stand strong for the integrity of our elections, and we will see whether Mike Pence enters history as a truly great and courageous leader. All he has to do is refer the illegally submitted electoral votes back to the states that were given false and fraudulent information where they want to recertify. With only three of the seven states in questions in question, we win and become president and have the power of the veto. At 10.49 a.m., the speechwriters were told to withhold this section from the speech. At 11.17 a.m., Trump calls Pence again, and they speak for about 20 minutes, during which Trump appeared visibly upset, frustrated, and angry. Uh, when Pence refused to obstruct or delay the proceedings, Trump insulted him as a wimp, as being not tough enough, uh, and ultimately saying, you know, you're not tough enough to make the call. Minutes later, after that call, speechwriters were told to reinsert the Mike Pence lines, in all caps, uh, and ultimately the line, we will see whether Mike Pence enters history as a truly great and courageous leader, makes it into the speech. So when he speaks, finally, Trump, after all of this, uh, he repeatedly directs his anger at, at the vice president, mm-hmm. yeah, vice I, president yep. Pence, and often ad-libs lines uh, which were not included in the draft text. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. Before speaking... Trump was told that much of the crowd refused to go through metal detectors or mags, magnetometers. Uh, The deputy chief of staff told Trump, quote, they have weapons that they didn't want confiscated by the Secret Service, unquote. He's saying this to Trump prior to the January 6th ellipse speech. Trump was furious, and he said, quote, I don't fucking care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the fucking mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Take the fucking mags away. And then... Trump ultimately speaks, and while he's speaking, he reiterates this sort of point that I hear there's people out there that are trying to get in. Can't you just let them in? And they ultimately let these people with weapons in uh, going around the magnetometers. So Trump understands these people are there with weapons. They're there uh, uh, to support him and that the weapons are not intended to be used against him. Right. So he says during the speech, uh, it ends up being, I think, about a 50-minute speech. He says, quote, And after this... We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. 
you have to show strength and you have to be strong. We have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated. So this is, I mean, pretty clear. Uh, again, we know what happened. There's no, there's no question of what was going on administratively and what the legal case was that they were trying to remain in power and then what the, ultimately what the incitement was for the violence. Well, well right. I, that's the point I was just going to make. I mean, there is no question based off of the text of the speech and the narrative surrounding the text of said speech. Which is all test, legal testimony from individuals throughout. That that is literal incitement of an insurrection, and it's a coup attempt on multiple fronts. Yes, and I and I do remember um, multiple phone calls that I I made on that day after they had stormed in, and I did use the word insurrection. Where it had been, it probably was months afterwards before I had first heard insurrection used yeah. in popular media to describe yeah. the events. On that same day, as you're saying, and I bet you were making these phone calls as the violence was happening, and this yes. is certainly, I, I was doing the same thing, having phone calls with friends, observing it, and, and just sort of, a, there was a general disbelief, and something about January 6th is, the, the further you get away from it, somehow the worse it seems to get. The, yes. the, more, uh, the more you understand that it was not just the QAnon people who are confused, and that's a large contingent of it, of who, and you know, they're misled, they're incited to the insurrection. Among that group are members of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys who, are, uh, who have since been found guilty on seditious conspiracy charges for their role in organizing the violent end of it. And these people went in there with zip ties. Uh, you know, we, they went in there with gas masks. They went in there in formation. They walked through uh, the crowd in, in towards the, the, the back end of the Capitol. They are currently spending time in our lovely federal prison system. Hun hundreds, of, hundreds of people are currently uh, spending time for their involvement in this violent uh, insurrection attempt. And Biden spoke at the same time we would have been making those phone calls as the violence was ongoing, as Trump refused, uh, by all accounts, to make any yes. sort of statement. He wasn't present. He wasn't public. He, he just disappeared. Biden speaks and he says, What we're seeing are a small number of extremists dedicated to lawlessness. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition, and it must end now. I call on this mob to pull back and allow the work of democracy to go forward. You've heard me say before in different contexts, the words of a president matter, no matter how good or bad that president is. At their best, the words of a president can inspire. At their worst, they can incite. And therefore, I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege, to storm the Capitol, to smash windows, occupy offices, the floor of the United States Senate rummaging through desks, on the Capitol, on the House of Representatives, threatening the safety of duly elected officials. It's not protest. It's insurrection. So that's President-elect Biden at the time speaking before President Trump puts out any kind of statement or gives any kind of uh, verbal remarks. Uh, that's President-elect uh, Biden making clear where he stands, uh, and certainly history will remember those words as the violence was unfolding. After Biden speaks, uh, Trump uh, then speaks from the Rose Garden, telling the rioters to go home and expressing his love for them. So go home. We love you. You're very special. He then tweets after the Rose Garden speech what I think is uh, one of the most chilling uh, statements ever made by a sitting president considering what was going on. He tweeted, These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from the great patriots who have badly and unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and in peace. Remember this day forever. So 
after he tweets this and after the violence and after President-elect Biden's remarks and after uh, Trump says, uh, let them through with their weapons, they're not here for me, uh, Trump continues to try to obstruct and delay the proceedings. Rudy Giuliani makes phone calls, uh, but ultimately Pence refuses to leave the Capitol, going as far to tell the Secret Service, I'm not getting in that car, knowing that if he got in the car, they would usher him away. Uh, and then the members of Congress similarly refusing to uh, leave the complex because they understood the image of vehicles leaving the Capitol uh, as it's under siege would be a success uh, yes. for the President uh, Trump's initiative, which may then allow him to uh, uh, declare martial law and then potentially invoke the Insurrection Act, which was the final element of their plan, which they did not seem quite able to get to was the invoking of the insurrection act the only thing that trump got right about any of this was when he tweeted uh remember this day forever yeah uh he did get that right uh although i think in his memory it's a slightly different uh kind of uh emotion that he's trying to evoke so congress certifies the results uh and republicans give speeches condemning trump uh, a few of them still go on to challenge the certification of the elections, but they all obviously ultimately get certified. But three weeks later, Kevin McCarthy visits Trump at Mar-a-Lago, and the uh, the redemption tour begins. And here we are, the New Hampshire primary. We are in Iowa. We are uh, back where we are, uh, 27 U.S. senators, uh, 130 representatives, all endorsing Trump. Uh, and... You know, there, there had been a narrative for a little while there that Ron DeSantis was going to be this great alternative. It w- there was never any opportunity for, for such a thing to happen. Uh, Why Trump, is that? Because the tail wags the dog. The base of the Republican Party is too large, and these people have become so consumed by the idea that they are manipulating the base, that they are smarter than the base of the Republican Party, and that they are using them when, in fact, I think it's the flipped. The base is now using the Republican Party as a vehicle of, once again, I would use the word fascism, but certainly an attempt of an authoritarian uh, style regime yeah. or strongman impl- you know, implementation. It's all based around grievance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what all of this is, uh, is based around, is grievance. Um, and it's unfortunate. I mean, it's unfortunate that they had the opportunity. They even started to take it on January 6th when they gave these speeches, but they could not apparently uh, maintain uh, any sort of moral or ethical uh, framework through which to actually confront Donald Trump uh, and remove him from power and send him into disc- to disgrace, uh, which is unfortunate. Or just go back home to Mar-a-Lago and leave us alone. Yeah, uh, but that's not how these people operate. It's an endless pursuit of uh, power. It's, uh, on, on the political side, on the corporate side, I mean, you asked earlier why do the sort of corporate interests go along. It's an endless pursuit of profit. Yep. Uh, and these two elements are in alignment. And when these two elements become in alignment, uh, the corporate uh, uh, greed and the political greed or power, this idea that we can end division by imp- installing a strong man, those things, when combined, uh, is what leads to fascism uh, historically. And right. that's why I use that word. It is a that is a paradoxical sentence. Reducing division by having oh. a strong man. Yeah, like that doesn't as a as a sentence of the English language, it makes no sense. Right. It it literally makes no sense. You and I spent some time. Um. There was there was some wine involved, watching Joe Rogan, and I, I don't consume that stuff, and I know you. you I mean, you do to a degree, but it's only... I keep, in, an, I keep an eye on it. Right, to keep an eye on it is, is, is just as a mechanism to study it. And I don't. Uh, and then I consumed some of it when, you know, we were sitting here uh, a few nights back. And how many times did I say that to you? I, I, I turned and I looked at you and I go, that, that, that literally, the, the words in that order do not compute they don't make any sense and yet people are lapping it up and taking they're not false flags just taking the flags in this case of fascist rhetoric yeah i mean there are there are always kernels of truth in what is uh, positioned as uh, rhetoric meant to sort of steer an individual in a certain way and those kernels of truth are what people hold on to so when you say something like uh we can end the divisiveness by putting in a strong man. It's true that there is divisiveness, and it's very bad, and everyone's mm-hmm. kind of annoyed by it. And if you're really, really, really tired of it, 
you can convince yourself that the strong man is the way to go. But what you may not uh, acknowledge in that same thought, because you're just not considering everything, is that uh, divisiveness is part of a liberal democracy. It's part of the competition of ideas uh, that needs to be maintained in order for a civil society to not slide into some sort of uh, real, real darkness. Um, and uh, look, that that ends, I think, where we started, which is on optimism. Uh, yeah, it is. It is a choice to be optimistic in the same way the who we vote for in November is a choice. Everyone has that choice. Nothing, nothing is set in stone. Uh, there's no reason to look at a poll today. Uh, and derive any sort of final conclusion from it. You can certainly have it inform your thinking, uh, but we just have to—we just have to, at the moment, wait and see how things pan out, uh, and continue having conversations and engage with uh, people respectfully and uh, honestly, and uh, respect the fact that everyone's opinion is is informed by more than just one thing or another. It's a confluence of events that makes someone decide to believe a certain thing or a certain way. And all we can do is hopefully say, hey, look, you know, you still have agency in all of this. You are still a participant in this thing we call democracy. You're still a member of the community. You still have your family and your friends, no matter what their political beliefs are. Uh, and you will be the one making the decision uh, in November, whether to cast your vote for uh, uh, Joe Biden or, as the Sometimes Weekly Decision Desk has declared today, the Republican nominee, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, that's that's the way it's going to go. That's democracy. You know, uh, and if you do understand the threat we're facing, I would say the the first response is cynicism and the second response has to be uh, optimism and action. And that brings us to Adam Thorne's British Invasion. <laughs> Hello. Are you to die? Oh, good Lord. To remind the listener, uh, Adam Thorne is currently dressed, wearing a robe and a wig, as we continue our uh, our attempt to get an interview with the Lord of Parliament. I've taken no uh, steps in that direction. Likewise. I don't think, I don't think you have yet either, but no. we'll get there. We'll figure it out. You did take um, some promotional shots for the podcast, and, you know... we. We don't we don't know how we've decided to monetize uh, such shots, but um, I again am wearing the uh, the robe and wig, and some blue light glasses today. But that's not what we're here to talk about. No, we? what, are we, no. what are we, we're here to talk. I think we're, we have some updates for the listener uh, on yes. this this third edition of Adam Thorne's British Invasion. We're gonna uh, update on both of the previous episodes. Yeah, we're um, we're, we're gonna bring a close to the World Darts Championship that uh, that concluded. Almost about three weeks ago now, but that's you know it, it is a world championship for the year, so it's, sure. it's still it's still relevant and it's still fresh. Yeah, the sports world, especially the sports world in, in Britain, was taken by storm uh, by this 16 year old child. But if you if you look him up and if you Google search this this kid, he 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 looks like he looks like he's about 37. He, yeah, he looks th- at least 30. Yeah. Uh, his name is Luke Littler. He actually turned 17 two days ago. Wow. Uh, so happy birthday to Luke Littler. Happy birthday, Luke. Luke, I know you're listening. Um, I'd like a 180. <laughs> so he played in the final. He was an unseated player, and he played in the in the final of the World Darts Championship. Yep. I uh, played against the a guy who was um, young, but not as young. He's in his late 20s, named Luke Humphreys. Two Lukes. Yeah. Is that a fluke? Oh. It's a Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Luke Humphrey's darts nickname is Cool Hand Luke. Wow. Okay. So it's, uh, you know, good for him. Yeah. They, play, they played in the final. Um, we watched the final together. Sure. We also I also made a comment that it was referee Russ Bray's final competitive yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. He's, the, he's the, uh, uh, the announcer. One ninety. Luke, you require 105. Does that stuff. He's my throat hurts after that. You know, <laughs> anyway, 30, 30 years refereeing professional darts matches. Yeah. We'll do that to you. Incredible. What what a career. You know, it's a, what a life. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. We might we might be able to chan- have the chance to see him uh, at Madison Square Garden May thirty first and June first for the darts? U.S. Darts Masters. Wow, I know I didn't know they were playing darts in America. Oh yes, and they're they're gonna bring you know they're gonna bring some of the uh, English players over. Wow, and Russ Bray, even though he's retired from competitive or for like you know, you think he was pushed out? 
No, he's he's in his <laughs> mid sixties. They couldn't they couldn't push out the voice of darts. Yeah, I, well, I, I just want like if if other people get to have fun with conspiracies, I'm gonna start. We're just gonna start our own. But okay. I think he was a part of the conspiracy that the the darts referees don't wear um, suits and ties anymore. Wow. Okay. And they just wear black shirts, yeah. like black golf shirts, and I, I that doesn't sit well. I mean, especially as a man sitting here wearing a robe and wig. I mean, how could a referee not have a shirt and tie on? Yeah, tradition is very important. Yes, uh, or a bow tie. Right. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's big dart. Big what, dart. What, that's that's big. That's big darts interfering in our lives. Yeah. It's a mess. At any rate. <laughs> the the two Luke grand final of the world championship. Luke Humphreys was favored. I don't remember what his closing odds were, but he was favored over Littler. But in a, in a race to seven sets, Luke Littler took a 4-2 lead. And for the first time in the tournament, I had watched um, his quarterfinals and semifinals. For the first time in those three matches, and I, then I would presume the entire tournament, he you actually saw him freeze at the occasion he realized he was three sets away from winning being the champion of the world at 16 years of age and got he got blown away yeah in the in those last five sets and uh and Humphreys Humphreys took it and they've been they've pretty much been doing a promotional tour together I mean it's been they, they do they they know each other and I guess have for a little bit since you know Luke was really on the junior uh tour as it were so it's been a it's been a very friendly, um, not a rivalry, but a you know, it's just whatever, very whatever, very sportsmanlike. Yeah, I guess, whatever the two of them. whatever happens in darts. Whatever, yeah. In the- <laughs> they then traveled, and that, this was this past weekend, to a a real darting hotbed, Bahrain. Wow. And Luke Littler actually won the Bahrain Darts Masters. He beat three times world champ Michael Van Gerwen eight legs to five. Wow. And then turned seventeen two days later. Yeah, that's that's an incredible. What an incredible. Uh, yeah. Journey. So good. Good for Luke. He I, we'll uh, he won ki- twenty thousand pounds, which is nothing short of the two hundred and fifty thousand pounds that he or two hundred thousand whatever he yeah. won for coming in second in the world championship. We're gonna have to uh, contact our research department, our decision desk. Yeah. Um. So it was two hundred thousand pounds, and I got this from Wikipedia, so you know it's true. Yeah. That's how you get the best information. So two hundred thousand pounds for the British darts uh, final second place finish. Yes. And then another twenty thousand uh, pounds. Is it pounds or dollars? Pounds. In ba- Bahrain dollars. Ba- yeah. Ba- Bahrainian. No, no, no. It was in pounds. In pounds. So another twenty thousand pounds. Pounds sterling. Uh, pounds sterling in Bahrain for coming in first place uh, of their whatever their darts uh, game was. Is that a, is that now is that a yearly competition there or is it just like uh, showcase so the when they go to these exotic countries and for them the united states is an exotic country yeah, I think <laughs> it is for me too I think. they uh they have like this world tour thing yeah. and it's it's not as serious and you know when they come over here they'll play they'll all play americans in the first round right and then the americans will invariably get knocked out because we suck at darts and then they'll play each other in the quarterfinals semis and final it's very fascinating that some I mean, it's just because they play more, I guess. But some nation would be better than another nation at darts. I mean, it's gravity. As far as I'm aware, gravity does not change where you go. But maybe that's maybe that's a big lie by Big Dart. They want us to think that. Again, I think Big Darts has to be investigated. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, other than that, in the darting world, the Premier League will be starting up. Um, the Premier Dart League, I should say. Not the, uh, not the Premier League that uh, I enjoy and I have uh, kind of forced you to enjoy. Um, oh, I don't enjoy it, but well, I, that second you did enjoy that second Jota goal for Liverpool. Of course, yeah, uh, that was that was an incredible, yeah. incredible finish. Yeah, so the Premier League will be starting up in a couple weeks. Uh, that'll that'll go through till about May, and and then really once the spring and summer hit, darts is kind of you know asleep. Beyond darts, but still within the British invasion, it's time to tell a story. Uh oh, it's time to tell a story. Uh, this is it's, it's going to get um, a rather personal. Personal, they say. <laughs> but uh, um, for those that know and for those that don't, I um, I, I officiate sports in the uh, community. I officiate track. I officiate swim. So I had a uh, swim meet that I was officiating on Friday night. Last Friday, came back, get into the house. Um, 
Nick and I room or live together. I don't room together. That's it's not it's not <laughs> freshman year of college. And uh, there's a set of four standard salutations that that you and I have. It's either four or five. There's yeah. there's Bongiorno. Yep. There's the 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 royal wave the hand, one. Hand wave. Yep. Uh, there's Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, yep. And then the the fourth. So I guess it is only four. Is yep. order. Yes. Yep. From our good friend. And a uh, man that sent me a cameo, a 10-minute cameo, which was way above and beyond. Two minutes, I go, whoa, they really, they, they, this, was, this was pretty good. Uh, but no, 10 minutes is, a, is above and beyond the cameo. Five minutes is above and beyond the cameo, uh, what you feel is, or what I feel is the requirement. Yes. Um, from the former Speaker of the British House of Commons, John Burkow, whom we referenced in the first episode. We talked at length about John Burkow. About John Burkow. So, and... I hate to admit it, but it would be a normal thing for me to walk into the house or to walk past you if, if you were doing work or something, or for you to do the same thing if, if I was sitting down here and just go, oh, da. Yes, that's correct. Was, that is correct. Frighteningly accurate, and uh, I, I can't believe I just admitted this to a global audience. Sure. But such is life. <laughs> walk in the house. And Say, now, I, and I'm watching. Uh, well, sorry, yeah. you're watching trash. You're, yeah. you're, you're 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 watching. So, you know, there's always that one thing that the the human being does. <laughs> Just one thing that you do to, is is your your off switch. That's right. For me, it's like I'll I'll put the you know I'll put the phone on my chest and like listen to like a like a soccer podcast or or some soccer sort of commentary or something and play FIFA. For you, you you watch this inc- just awful reality television. <laughs> yeah, and not like popular reality television. It's not necessarily anything that's in the mainstream. I like these. I like these uh, sort of uh, reality game shows. I guess I don't know what you really call them, but just competitive, uh, personality driven game shows and uh, it's almost a new genre it is i mean i'm sure there's a, but like uh, like actually an older version would be like the mole which i think is ah, yes. back um but on netflix there's the trust which is a, this game show where basically everyone shows up to this island or this piece of property and they all immediately win if they just do nothing uh and then over time they just start voting each other out out of like spite and and I don't know, anger? I, I really don't know. It's quite interesting. I find it entertaining. It's sort of a game theory approach because you can block people. You can... All of this stuff goes into it. And then but, there's also... And I know that you and I are both excited for Deal or No Deal Island. See, I will watch that. I would definitely watch that. That, that is, that's a great example of, of, a, of a show that I would watch. But most recently I've been watching because the trust on Netflix, I had reached my binge, uh, the end of the binge, uh, and I was waiting for the second half of the season to come out. I started this other show because I d- went to the old Google and I said I searched shows like The Trust, uh, and and <laughs> that's <laughs> is that how that actually went? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like that specific kind of genre of reality television that, that contributes nothing to my existence. Uh, and so I did that, and I found it said... Uh, that is not that... I, I, I hate to cut you off here, but that was not good foreshadowing. I, I, I went to, uh, and I found this article that said, The Trust is just this bootleg version of this show called The Traders. And I had never heard of The Traders. So I went to the Peacock app, uh, and yes. I, I binged the first season of this show, The Traders, uh, and it's a sort of one of those mafia-style games uh, or secret Hitler games where there's two or three people that are working against the group, uh, and that's that's really the setup. Um, and I binged the first season, uh, and it's a Friday night, and I go, okay, I'll start the second season, even though every episode's not out yet and I can't watch the whole thing in one sitting, which is what I prefer to do for my ter- off-switch. Uh, I said I'll start the second, uh, this the second season, and I start it, uh, and I'm watching it, and I have to pause uh, because I, I I immediately understand uh, I cannot watch this uh, without uh, my sometimes co-host Adam Thorne being present. So you're sitting in a chair, walk in, and you go, you'll never guess who is on this show, and I go. Oh, oh, wow, could it be John Burkow? <laughs> and you just start laughing, and I'm like, oh, okay. So then I sit down, and I start watching this this, this program, and uh, 
And it's, it's that sort of intro, like, this season, I'm yeah, the traitor. Yeah, it's like, oh, great, yeah. Like, what, what and am Thorne I be- thinks I'm just roping him in because, you know. I, right, I, just just to, like, you know, to spin a yarn on me because right. I'm I'm liable to have a yarn spun upon him. Sure. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there watching, like, oh, you know, this sucks. Okay, whatever, blah, 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 whatever. And then in the corner, of the corner of one of the shots within the first three minutes was... John Burkow. So what's your name, sweetheart? John. John Burkow. Yeah. Right. Hi, I'm a retired... You're a politician, right? Oh, you're a very little John Burkow is on the second season of The Traders. Of the American version There is a British of the version. Traders. Yeah, he's doing what I call the reverse, reverse, reverse James Corden, which is... He even... beat us to it! <laughs> he, be- he beat us to it! <laughs> it it's... it's uh. It really was. I mean, I saw it and I just immediately. You weren't here when I first saw it. And I just start laughing because what the <laughs> hell? I mean, I was like, why the hell is this guy in this thing? It doesn't make any because it's literally he's like. A, I think I described him as being in the twilight of his life. He, he's literally this 60, 70 year old man, probably somewhere in the range there. And he's on this show and every other contestant is either like a professional athlete, like a boxer or is a is a reality television show from The Brother, or this show The Challenge, or these other... I don't know... I actually don't know any of those shows. Love Island, all those shows. Yeah. The shows that, I, that are true trashy reality television show. I say that with reverence, versus the trashy, trashy reality television show, which I watch that, like, no one should be consuming at all. <laughs> uh, and John Burkow. And he's the only one who doesn't fit that mold, and it's just... Oh, he doesn't fit it at all. It's very weird. It's very strange to witness him with these people. Can you describe for me my reaction when I first saw him? I, I mean, you exploded in, yes. in a sense of euphoria, confusion, plus the fact you had guessed it right just by the glimmer in my eye, which was, uh, yeah. which was this is really, like, this is doesn't make sense look. You know, that sort of smirk and ah, and just like, this is, re- like, you'll never guess who's in this, which is a hint in and of itself because there's really only by... Thorne and I's weird existence, one person who fits that bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's either that or the ghost of George H.W. Bush, and it oh. wasn't going to be the ghost of George H.W. Bush. What if it was? I jumped out of that chair so quickly and then ran halfway up the stairs screaming and then turned around and had my like arms flailing as I yes. ran down the stairs yes. screaming, holy shit, I can't believe he's on this show. And at that point, I didn't know that it was the American version. I still thought it was the British version. Right. Because there was like four people that were that had British accents. The yeah. host. The host, Alan Cummings, has a British accent. Oh, yeah, and it's it taking place in Scotland. Yep. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, okay. And then three episodes in, I figure out that it's the American version. Yes. and <laughs> Which makes even less sense. And... Let me just say, even if you don't know who John Burkow is, if you were watching this, I think you'd be like, why is this guy in this? It really, I mean, you watch it and he sticks out like a sore thumb wherever he is, which is, I, I mean, maybe he's just there for this. It's comedic as hell. I mean, it's, it's just hysterical. It's literally this one old man with white hair who, within the first four minutes of the show, and I don't think you've actually seen this part because I think we, you meant but stands up and goes, oh, duh. He does the, he <laughs> oh, does the thing. He does it for them, and they all and he takes a bow because he's British, and they are all like, "Oh, okay, all right." And in, you know, in the first episode or two, he you know he he falls under suspicion because he's having trouble breathing, and then this woman goes, "You're having trouble breathing," so the the crowd already kind of starts to turn on him. It's like maybe he's the traitor. So you're, I mean, now we're getting into the nitty gritty of the game. I had childhood asthma. <laughs> yeah, he claims he has childhood asthma, and then in the next episode, he's sprinting around like James Bond. Oh, that's and it's yeah, actually, but he can't run. He's running like he actually is running like the Mission Impossible run, right? Like the little arm strokes kind of thing, and and a pot belly because he's in his sixties. He's in his sixties. He's, he's and it's and so then. Then he's confronted in the second time. He's like, well, you said you had asthma, but here you are sprinting around. And, and so it, it's it, just really an uh, interesting thing. But I also don't think anyone actually thinks he's a traitor, and I won't reveal whether he is or not. But I don't think they think he's a traitor because it's almost too much. And in, he explained how he doesn't have asthma in the most John Burkow way possible. Yes. Uh, you know, just, you know, th- this very circumlocutous six-minute explanation to just be like, no, I had it when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. 
I um, I don't remember the exact word choice I took, uh, but uh, bah, 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 bah. I don't have a particular recollection of what I just said yeah, and yeah. what I had said two days ago. Yeah. but I know that I had been, you know, etc. etc. And I I just I didn't say anything there yeah. when I was just speaking. Yeah, John, what do you think is a traitor and why? Truth is, none of us has conclusive evidence, but that evidence that we've acquired can't be ignored, and for that reason, I have voted. I, I'd like to, I'd like to buttress this with I went and um, caught breakfast with one of my um, one of my friends Sunday morning, and he mentioned that he also watches the traders, and I was like, "Holy shit! This this this, this is wild!" Like you know, because I don't you know we don't, well I don't partake in much of this you know reality stuff, and uh, then I had to explain to my friend that I was actually a John Burkow fan and have been for 15 years. Yeah. And I, I, look, I, <laughs> Which is even more bizarre to explain to another human and, being. And, and look, I don't want to take all the credit, but the fact is uh, the Sometimes Weekly podcast comes out, episode one, uh, at barnstorming. Uh, oh, rave reviews. And... Was it us who elevated John to this this to this perch? And uh, some people would say no, the filming had to happen months ago. Uh, but, but I would you don't know you don't know that. That's, I, that's 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 exactly that's deep right. Television. And I and I would say uh, at the very least, uh, you know, I think we're among, uh, if not the first, we're among the first of American media to introduce John Perkow to a popular audience. We we are of, and possibly the leaders of the vanguard of John Burkowism in the United States. Yeah, so I might have to reach out to John. John and I exchanged uh, when I uh, uh, got uh, Adam that cameo for his birthday, or was it your birthday, or was it just a random day? I don't remember. No, it was a random day. Yeah, even better. Uh, I still have the tab up on my phone. Yeah, I, I, when I got thrown that, uh, after that, John Burkow and I exchanged some communication. Uh, so I might have to reach out again. Of course, as the longtime listeners will know, I'll pay two ninety nine, two dollars and ninety nine cents to send John Burkow a message, but he's a nice guy, so we might have to reach out. But I think we will have to reach that might be the ticket. And the and the the point being, uh, you know, uh, we've been on this thing from the get go, from the start, uh, and now John Burkow is being introduced to a broader uh, American audience. And from, from from the get go of when he was first elected Speaker of the House of Commons. Sure, if we go a decade plus ago, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was this insane thing. I'm watching Thorn comes in, and I say, you're not going to believe who's on this. Uh, and I certainly encourage the listener. Uh, if you're a fan of, of uh, trashy reality television, uh, or you're not, if you're just a fan of John Burkow, uh, consider just watching the, it would be the first episode of the second season, and uh, just just giving it, giving it a go, and seeing how you like it, as he tries to fit in with uh, these young reality television show stars in this strange uh, and obscure Peacock show. Yeah, it's not even it's, network television. He is always in the background of every... Of, of every interaction. Yeah, yeah like, I mean, he's never actually doing anything. What's really upsetting for me is it's destroyed, like you said, it's sort of an off switch. The, the, him, his presence in this turned the switch back on for me. I can't even enjoy it in the same way. <laughs> I enjoy it in a different way, but it's like the way that I enjoy reading at this point, where I'm like, <laughs> let me just watch and see how this, you know, a person being where they're not supposed to be is really, really funny. Just, it's been our entire lives. Yeah, is being where you're not supposed to be. Uh, and just contrasting, in his case, he's contrasting very professional uh, in this strange setting. Uh, and in our case, I don't know quite what we're doing, but we're, 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 oh, yeah, we're, no, we're no wearing a wig and a robe and a suit jacket, and we're talking more seriously about politics than uh, even the people that probably should be serious about it. But anyway, all to say, give it a chance. I mean, give it a watch if you're interested. I will. Is there anything else for British Invasion, John Burkow darts that we need to cover? Oh, I all all of this all of this hysteria around darts, at least the darts in the past month. I mean, Luke Littler taking taking the UK by storm, and all, I mean even getting like attention in this country. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nine Especially dart, on social media. Nine dart finishes uh, hey, at Bahrain. Oh, wait, that's that was the one thing we didn't mention. He did yeah. have a nine dart finish I, I, in Bahrain. I had a, a friend of mine, a friend of the pod, send me that clip and send, uh, uh, I've had other friends send me some uh, videos about nine dart finishes. Uh, I've had other friends reaching out about uh, our international audience. And also, by the way, darts has now ended up in my Instagram reel feed. That's my other off switch. 
Uh, and I don't know, uh, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I don't know quite how that's happened, but now it's a regular appearance. The entrances, the commentary, uh, it has made its way into my feed. So again, uh, I don't want to say we're, we're, we're driving that, uh, th- this sudden interest uh, on this side of the pond in darts, uh, but we're certainly having a heavy hand in it. We should get the sponsorship for the American Darts Championship. It Look, could be the sometimes weekly American Darts Master. Yeah, we might have to. I mean, we'll see. We'll talk to our, our people. Nate uh, Silver. We'll talk to Nate Silver, uh, who is not doing well. Uh, and we'll talk to to our folks. Uh, and maybe we do some coverage of, of the American uh, uh, Darts Tournament that's coming up here. You said Madison Square Garden. I've heard of it. Uh, and we'll see if uh, we'll see if if we can't bring the people even more excitement surrounding this topic. God bless America. 